Well, today, as you know, we are actually in part two of our series, uh, The Art of Spiritual Warfare. And if you remember, uh, we began the study by looking at uh, a particular event that took place at a particular time. We're, we're told that it happened in the days of Jared. Jared being the father of Hanoch, or the father of Enoch, right? Where these angels, angelic beings, literally coming down, crossing the line into the fleshly physical realm, and out of that, taking these, these women, these fleshly women as wives, out of that, something happened. Offspring was produced. And it wasn't just any offspring, but it was a vile and evil demonic offspring. And understand something, this offspring has come to make war against us. They have come to do battle, they have come to afflict, they come to oppress, and there's something very, very important that you need to understand about these demons, about these spirits, these these vile offspring. Their hatred for you cannot be quenched. I want you to really ponder that. Generation after generation after generation, they afflict, they oppress, they do battle, and it is never enough. They never come to the point where they say, oh my, I've afflicted man and woman, age after age, generation after generation. I can't do this anymore. My heart doesn't allow me. I cannot afflict them anymore. They never stop coming. They just keep coming. Uh, uh, decade after decade. They never give up. There is no mercy. They only know hatred. This is the reality of our situation. Well, this week we're going to continue to build upon this theme. And uh, I'm just going to be kind of part two of laying the groundwork down. And I just, as an as a upfront disclaimer, today is going to be very, very simple. It's a very simple message that I'm going to give you. I'm making a very simple point, okay, that I could probably do in less than 30 seconds, but there's no fun in that. So we're going to take the scenic route, all right? We're going to take the scenic route, and even there are times that we're even going to have fun uh, with today's message, uh, while at the same time appreciating the gravity of the situation, all right? And really what today is about laying the groundwork down is about understanding our surroundings, understanding our environment that we live in, the reality of our enemy and how powerful, how evil, and how formidable they are, all right? And after today, I think, you know, if this information doesn't compel you to run to Yeshua, I mean, I don't know anything that will. This is kind of the last stop, if you will. This is so persuasive, so compelling If this doesn't prick your heart to fall at the feet of Yeshua, I don't know what is going to do that. Now, with that said, if you remember in our last study, I brought you to the book of Enoch. I gave you that whole background of Genesis 6 and and, and what happened. Well, today, we're actually going to go back to the book of Enoch because if you jump ahead a few chapters, we're going to find out that Enoch doesn't stop there in articulating the reality of what we're faced with today. He actually goes on to describe another event. Equally, even more so, horrific. That has impacted the reality of our situation. And how and who we are up against. 
Now, the passage we're going to look at, uh, it's somewhat encoded. It's a little bit cryptic. Um, uh, will be for some of you, maybe for others of you it will not be. But be that as it may, we are going to go through the process of decoding this uh, somewhat cryptic message. And it's going to be quite easy for us uh, to do so because today we have the New Testament, the Brit Chadashah, and we have the Tanakh. And when you have these downloaded, when you spend time and the Word and, and, and give your, commit your time to Yeshua, and not just giving your time to study of the Word, but actually walking it out, when you read passages like we're about to read, they make perfect sense. I mean, they make perfect sense. There's no illusions whatsoever. It just jumps off the page at you very, in a very powerful way. So with that said, I'm going to take you to the 42nd chapter of the book of Enoch. And I can remember this, uh, reading this for the first time. I was actually on a road trip, and the first time I read it, I was in awe. It was so awesome how it laid out the reality, how it laid out these things that happen that are being spoken of over and over again in Scripture. Only this does it in a, in a parabolic fashion. So it's really pretty cool. You're gonna, today you're going to get to see how cool the Bible is. Amen? The Bible is awesome. It is such a precious book. It's the only thing I care about as far as literature goes. And uh, you're just really going to get a, a good taste of this today. Um, so let's look at the 42nd chapter uh, of Enoch. And this is a very, one of the briefer chapters in the entire book. There's only three verses. But uh, do not be deceived. It packs a, a, a prophetic punch, if you will. Enoch 42, verse 1, we read, Wisdom found no place where she might dwell. Then a dwelling place was assigned for her in the heavens. Wisdom went forth to make her dwelling among the children of men and found no dwelling place and took her seat among the angels. And unrighteousness went forth from her chambers. Whom she sought, not she found, and dwelt with them as rain in a desert and dew on thirsty land. Now, at first glance, uh, this passage may not seem like it's saying a whole lot. Uh, or even at first glance, it may not appear that it's really making a whole lot of sense. But I can tell you, it is, and it does. It is saying a lot here, and it does make a lot of sense. Now, I want to approach this in a specific, specific fashion. I actually want to break this passage up into two parts because there's actually two ideas being conveyed here. There's two separate events being conveyed. So what I want to do is I want to look at this first event. Let's get rid of verse 3. We're just going to look at the first two verses here. And what I want to draw your attention to is the word, and I'll highlight this for you, the word wisdom. What do you notice about this term wisdom in this passage? Well, the first thing that jumps out is it is personified. Wisdom is being personified. In other words, it's referring to a person, to an actual individual, all right? That's what's going on. The question here is, is well, who is that? If, if it's being utilized in the context where it's being personified and it represents someone, the question for us to understand the passage is who is the person being described here? Well, this is where the Bible comes into play because when we read about wisdom in the Bible in the identical context, meaning where wisdom's being personified, there is only one candidate that fits this bill, and that is the Messiah Yeshua, period. It is the Messiah 
Yeshua. He is identified, he is personified as the wisdom of God. And I'm going to go on to prove this. I'm going to show you from Scripture both the Old and the New Testament. And we're going to establish really what's being said here in Enoch. Proverbs 8, verse 1. Does not wisdom cry out in understanding, lift up her voice? Notice anything? The entire chapter of Proverbs 8, it is all about wisdom and in a specific context, the identical context of what we read in Enoch 42. It is personified. Here we have wisdom and it's crying out. It's doing something that a person would do, crying out and lifting up her voice. Her voice. Just to again draw the parallel here, show you this identical context. You notice that wisdom is being presented here in the feminine. Correct? Wisdom lifted up her voice. What did we just read in Enoch 42? Wisdom found no place where she might dwell. Verse 2. Wisdom went forth to make her dwelling among. Both of these. Perfect parallel. Both utilized in the context of um, the feminine. Now, you might just say, well, Daniel, now that's really confusing and you seem to be contradicting yourself because you just said or purported that wisdom was actually the Messiah, Yeshua. Uh, he's masculine. That would fall under the male term. Well, this is where it's very, very important that you see. In Hebraic context, from a Hebraic mindset, it is consistent, it is common, mind you, to take the masculine and represented it in the feminine to represent that masculine in the feminine. And all you need to do is go through the Bible and you see this over and over again. And I'll give you a couple examples. You think of Israel. Oftentimes, most times, Israel is representative in the masculine. That's how it's represented, right? But at other times, it's represented in the feminine. You think of Hosea. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Well, you go to chapter 2 in Hosea, clearly Israel is referenced in the feminine. I mean, and this is just consistent. You think of Yeshua in Matthew chapter 12. Uh, the people come to him and say, Yeshua, your mother and your brothers are seeking you. And he goes to the multitudes and he says, who are my mother and my brothers? It is those who do the will of my Father in heaven. So here he could be looking at all these men and calling them his mother. I mean, even the Lord identifies himself at times in the context of a mother. As a mother comforts his child, so I desire to comfort you. You go to Isaiah 66. So over and over again, this is very Hebraic and very common, especially when speaking in the spirit or in the parabolic arena, in these dark sayings, as Yeshua states in the book of Matthew. So this is very common to speak in the feminine. So do not be thrown off by this, that wisdom is being utilized in the context of the feminine. This actually is consistent. All right? Now let's move on. We're going to go, we're going to jump around a little bit. And I'm going to build this case. In verse 4, we read, To you, O men, this is wisdom. To you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. Well, who does that sound like to you? What candidate fits that bill? When wisdom is being personified, it is the Messiah, Yeshua. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, why would they hear his voice? He's crying out to the sons of men. And opens the door, I will come to him and dine with him and he with me. You think of John chapter 10. I mean, we could look at this all day, right? John chapter 10, he's, Yeshua is describing. He's the door of the sheep. He's the shepherd of the sheep. He calls out and the sheep hear 
his voice and they follow him. They know his voice. So the very thing that we see wisdom doing in Proverbs 8 is the very thing we see Yeshua doing throughout his ministry. Even to this very day, even after his ministry here on earth, even to this day, these things are being fulfilled. In addition to this, as we come to the first century, we find that the Apostle Paul, well, he understood exactly where we're going with this. He understood exactly what I just presented to you. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Mashiach is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul comes right out and says, Yeshua is the wisdom of God. He is wisdom personified. Going back to Proverbs chapter 8, verse 17. Wisdom goes on to say this. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently will find me. I love those who love me. Where have we heard that before? John chapter 14, verse 21. Yeshua. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Yeshua just got done saying the exact same thing that we just read in Proverbs 8. Look at this. He who loves me, I will love him. What did wisdom just say? I love those who love me. There's no question. We're dealing with the Messiah, Yeshua. You even think about Exodus 20. and We read it every Shabbat, right? We go through the Ten Commandments. And the Lord shows mercy to who? To those who love him and keep his commandments. The love is reciprocated. This is the context. Moving ahead, jumping ahead in Proverbs 8, verse 22, we read this. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way before his works of old. I have been established from everlasting, from the beginning, before there ever was an earth. I want to draw your attention to this word established. This is pertaining to wisdom. Wisdom has been established. If you read this in the Hebrew, it's actually nasach. It means to be poured out. So the context that this is actually being stated in is that wisdom is saying, I have been poured out from everlasting. Where have we heard that? Because in Ephesians, as we get to Ephesians chapter 1, Paul tells us that God chose us in Yeshua. He chose us in Yeshua before the foundation of the earth. Yeshua was predestined to be our atonement, to be our forgiveness of sins, to be poured out. And with this, the prophets agree. Uh, Psalms 22, verse 14. This is a messianic psalm. We all know this. This pertains to Yeshua. There's no debate. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. Fascinatingly enough, as you continue in the book of Enoch, and it continues to talk about this wisdom, and this wisdom being personified, this is what it says. Wisdom is poured out like water. Wisdom is poured out like water. So the simple point that I am making here is that when we read about wisdom in, in the 42nd uh, chapter of Enoch, when we read about this wisdom, we know, I know that I know that I know. Scripture proves it. It is talking about Yeshua. And to further prove this point, just look at the description in this passage 
that's given regarding this wisdom. Because this wisdom is recorded as actually having, because it's personified, it has an action. Well, what is this wisdom doing? Well, let's look at this. I'll highlight it. Verse 2, wisdom went forth to make her dwelling among the children of men. What do we know about Yeshua? This is, this is just going to be, you're just going to have to get used to it. This is going to be a Shabbat of rhetorical questions. What do we know about Yeshua? We know that the Word became flesh. He said, I am the bread from heaven. It came down from heaven. This Word, Yeshua came down from heaven and He made His dwelling among the children of men. That's what we know. But what happened when Yeshua came down? See, something happened. Well, the passage goes on to say in Enoch 42, uh, verse 2, the back half, and found no dwelling place and took her seat among the angels. So I ask, when Yeshua came down from heaven, did he stay? No. He found no dwelling place whatsoever. What happened to the lights here? Okay, I'll leave that to the technicians. You can still uh, hear my voice, and that's enough for today. But um, so here we, there we go. So here we found uh, no dwelling place. And this is describing Yeshua's ministry when he came down. He actually ascended back up. And look at the second half of this that I have highlighted. Took her seat among the angels. What do we know when Yeshua ascended back into heaven? What happened to him? He took his seat. You think of it. Pay close attention to what's being described here. He took his seat. We read, I mean, throughout the New Testament, you see it all over the place. Hebrews chapter 1, just for an example. But we know that Yeshua, when he rose from the dead, when he paid our penance, he arose and sat down at the right hand of the Father. He sat down on the throne of God, right? He literally took his seat. Enoch 42 is describing with perfect accuracy the event of Yeshua, the event of his coming with impeccable precision. It is amazing. In fact, interestingly enough, one of the things, and it's just, it's, it's bizarre. You know, I don't know how many times I've read this, uh, but I'm just going to tell you, uh, I never truly appreciated the passage I'm about to show you. These are the words of Yeshua until I went through the book of Enoch because something clicked. Something just clicked and it, it made perfect sense to me. A scribe comes up to Yeshua and says, Yeshua, I will follow you wherever you will go in Matthew 8. Yeshua responds with a very peculiar statement that it isn't followed by any clarification. It's like he grabbed it out of thin air and threw it to this scribe. But after reading this, it makes perfect sense. Look at what Yeshua says in Matthew 8, verse 20. And Yeshua said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Isn't that fascinating? He who look at Enoch 42, we're told, wisdom found no dwelling place, so she had to reascend. And here in Matthew 8, Yeshua is saying, foxes holds, birds of the air have nest, but I have nowhere to lay my head. He found no dwelling place. It's an amazing statement. It's just starting to, it starts to jump off the page of actually what he's referring to. That this guy, he may follow him, but he isn't going to follow him into heaven. Yeshua is telling him, he's going back. I'm going back. There's nowhere for me here. I must reascend. 
The other thing I want to draw your attention to here, and it does directly tie into the book of Enoch, make no mistake, is you look at this term, the son of man. Now, we find this term utilized in the book of Ezekiel, so it's, not, it's common. Uh, in Daniel, specifically, utilized in the context of the Mashiach. But what's interesting is when we talk about what's actually being said here of not staying here and rising up, this ties directly to the book of Enoch. The son of man is one of the main titles for expressing the Mashiach in the book of Enoch. It is so powerful how the book of Enoch utilizes it. It utilizes it like the the book of Daniel does. And it is in a mighty way that the son of man will sit on the throne. All of this ties together. All of this is telling us the same story. Now, going back to the book of Enoch, we're going to continue. There's a second part. There's a second event recorded here. And this really is really the focus of today, of setting the stage. Going to verse 3, we read the following. And unrighteousness went forth from her chambers, whom she sought, not she found, and dwelt with them as rain in a desert and dew on thirsty land. Again, rhetorically asking, who do you suppose this unrighteousness is referring to? Satan, the devil, right? Hasatan. And we're going to prove this, uh, of course, through Scripture. Uh, But before we go to Scripture, I do want you to notice something here. I want you to notice that unrighteousness is looking for someone in particular. But we're told that she doesn't find the one she is looking for. Very important. All right? Well, I want to take you to the book of Revelation, and I want to show you how this all ties in. This is incredible. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, we read, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. I want to stop here for a second. Who is this woman? How do we identify her? Well, fortunately for us, we're given a very significant sign of who this woman is. And it is the garland of 12 stars. This is the indicator of who we're dealing with. A garland of 12 stars is on top of this woman's head. Who would that be? Israel. It's Israel. This woman is Israel. Continuing on in verse 2. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. Verse 4. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. What we just read in the book of Enoch, chapter 42, what was prophesied in Enoch, okay? Remember, wisdom would come forth, right? What Revelation would call here uh, uh, refers to a male child being brought forth. And who was waiting for the male child? Unrighteousness, right? Well, what did Enoch say? Unrighteousness went forth from her chambers, but whom she sought, not she found. Exactly what is being described here in Revelation 12. To the T. And even to the point where you see in verse 5, at the very end of verse 5 here, in the last sentence, the child was caught up to God in his throne. Telling the same exact story. 
Moving on in verse 6. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that she should feed there 1,260 days. Moving on to verse 7, and this is where we really get to the heart of the matter. A war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. A war broke out in heaven. Try to wrap your mind around what was just said here in verse 7. This war was not physical. This war was not here on earth. This war that broke out in heaven was amongst the immortals of God. The immortals, the angels of God, all of those who saw God face to face, they worshipped Him. Now all of a sudden, a war erupted in a place we can't even imagine. Who would ever think? I mean, when you really sit down to think, here we expect it. We expect war here on earth, especially in the physical. But in heaven, that's where perfection reigns. How is that possible? What happened? I mean, think about it. Something had to happen for this to erupt. What was the cause of this? The cause was Satan went after the throne of God. He went to assume the throne. And he was willing to fight for it. He was willing to fight for this throne. What was the outcome of this war? What was the outcome? We find out in the next verse. But they did not prevail, nor there was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out. That serpent of old, which is interesting, this is, a direct, this is directly taking you back to the Garden of Eden, who, who made Eve, who deceived Eve, specifically says the serpent. Here you have Genesis, and here you have the last book of the Bible bringing us back to there. That serpent of old called the devil or Diablos, and Satan, a Satanus, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Try to put this into perspective for a second. If we were to go back to Revelation 5, and I didn't put it up here, but if we went back to Revelation 5, we're actually told the angels of heaven together, they are crying out, and they're crying out, worthy is the lamb uh, that was slain. And then we're given a number. Ten thousands times ten thousands and thousands of thousands. Ten thousand times ten thousand. If you do the math, just conservatively, you're way over a hundred million angels. Okay? We're creating some perspective here. You're way over a hundred million angels. And if you read Revelation 5, most people would understand the context that that is actually referring to the very, very end. This would have been after a third had already been cast out. And we're talking over, way over a hundred million angels. How many angels are we talking about? A third of heaven. How many angels could we be talking about? Hundreds and hundreds of thousands. That's how many. Put that in perspective. Why does that matter? Why do we need perspective on that? Well, as we continue, you're going to find out. Look at what we read in verse 10. Then I heard a voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Mashiach have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. 
And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives to the death. Now listen closely, verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Well, this is wonderful. The heavens get to rejoice because the accuser has been cast out. They've been thrown out. But I want to ask the question that all of you want to ask. What about us? What about us? Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. Woe. Woe is us. Something has happened. Something monumental, a monumental event has taken place. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child, dropping down to verse 17, and the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war. This is what he has done. When he was cast out, he has come to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Messiah Yeshua. What do I want you to understand? We are at war. This is war. And we find that it's not just against evil spirits produced in the generation of Jared. It's way bigger than that. Because we're told over a third of heaven has come down. Hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of angels have come down. This is a horrible, horrible situation. This is bad as it gets. And if that weren't enough, guess what? To top it all off, they now have a leader. They have a leader who was second to none among the angels in heaven. Scripture tells us that Satan was the seal of perfection. Scripture tells us that he was full of wisdom, that he was perfect in beauty. And all of these accolades that Hasatan has make sense because we're also told that he was the covering cherub that literally overshadowed the mercy seat, the closest that you could get to God, outside of Yeshua, of course, who sat on the throne himself. I want you to think about that. Put this into context. And now... This adversary is coming for us. He's coming to make war against us, against all those who confess Yeshua and who have made it in their heart. They have made a commitment to keep his commandments no matter what. They will not compromise. And in the interest of self-preservation, you might want to consider that fact and understand something. Walking away from Yeshua is not going to be an option for you. Uh, It's just not. Giving up is not an option for us. We are going to have to fight. We must fight or we will fall. Understand the situation as far as enemies goes. This is the worst case scenario. I mean, no matter how well thought you think you are, you could not come up with a worse scenario than we are in. You couldn't do it. Our enemy couldn't be more dangerous And he is better at what he does than anyone. He is clever and he is a deceiver. He is the father of lies. He has mastered the art of intimidation. And he knows, make no mistake, he knows your vulnerable spots. He knows your weak spots. And he's going to hit you where it counts. He's going to take you out. He's going to try to take you out. Let me be clear. 
We do not stand a chance against him. We do not stand a chance against his army. In every way, he is more militarily advanced than we are. He's more capable. He's more strong. He is faster. He is quicker. He is wiser. It won't matter how many people that you get to join your fight. You will not prevail. There is only one who will prevail. And his name is Yeshua. That is the only one that can prevail. And you have an option. You better get on his team or you're going down. This is to drive your commitment to righteousness. This is to drive your commitment to the Lord and to get the world out of your heart. Destroy the worldly emotions that are welling up inside you. Destroy them. Get them out because you are being hunted. You are being hunted. And the demons and the angels are coming after you to take you out. The most important thing that you need to understand about the art of spiritual warfare is your need for your Lord, for the Messiah, Yeshua. Victory in this war is going to depend on you putting your faith in Him. And this isn't a weak faith. This isn't going to be a convenient faith. This isn't one that's easily toppled over. It is steadfast to the end. A faith that will not waver, a faith that does not bend, a faith that does not break. It's a faith, I'm going to tell you, that is going to be tested it is a faith that will be refined. Yeshua is our secret weapon. And for us to live through this war, we're going to need him. We're going to need him to fill our heart in every way. With that said, I want to recap what we have covered this far in looking at this stage that we're kind of setting. Because we have identified not one event, but two events that have dramatically impacted the way we live our lives today. Our environment is directly impacted. The first event, fallen angels have come down and they spawned evil spirits that have come out against us. We know they've come to do battle and to afflict and to torment. But not just that, we have another event. Satan and a third of his angels were cast out of heaven. I want to be clear on something. This is why I form, uh, formatted these first two teachings the way I did. These are not the same event. And for you to really have that perspective is important, from my opinion. These are two different events entirely. All right? And to prove this to you, I just want to ask the question. Let's just get more rhetorical. When was Satan cast out of heaven? We know what happened in the days of Jared, the generation of Jared. Well, now I ask you, when was Satan cast out of heaven? Was it during the generation of Herod? We know for a fact that is not true. If we hold the testimony of the book of Enoch, we know that is not the truth. So again, I ask, when was Satan cast out of heaven? Some of you might answer, well, at the garden. Because that's very plausible. That would make sense, right? When Satan comes and makes mankind, mankind who is created in the image of God, makes him fall... It wouldn't make sense that the Lord would take action and say, you're out of here. You have corrupted my servants. Get out of heaven. You have committed an abominable crime. Did it happen in the garden? And I'm going to tell you, Satan was not cast out upon what he did to Adam and Eve in the garden. We know this. And I say this biblically speaking. We know this because later on in the book of Job, what do we discover? We discover this. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. 
Okay, this is after the garden. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. So we know sometime after the garden incidents, there's debates all over the place as to when, when did Job really exist, when was the book written, and so forth. Nobody really knows. But one thing we know for sure, this happened after the garden, all right? And yet, we find after the fact, the devil still had full access to present himself before the Lord. Very fascinating. And, and this should make sense to you because in Genesis 28, what, what do we see Jacob? What did Jacob see? It's what's known as Jacob's ladder. And when he's seen this vision, when he had this dream, he saw angels ascending and descending out of heaven. It's exactly what Satan was doing, ascending and descending. Descending to the earth, ascending back into heaven. This is common. This is an angelic thing to do. A portal of heaven is open to the angels to go between heaven and earth. So, we know that after the garden incident, Satan is still allowed to present himself. Why? Well, you can ask the Lord that when you get into heaven. I'm not quite sure myself. It's just a fascinating thing. So, when exactly did this event happen? I mean, does the Bible even give us any indication as to when Satan was cast out? Interestingly enough, the Gospel of John actually gives us a little bit of insight if you're looking for it. He gives us some insight. There's a couple statements that have been recorded by Yeshua, okay, or by John regarding Yeshua, the things that came out of his mouth. And considering the topic we're talking about right now, I think they're going to resonate with you on a level they may not have before, all right? It's a wealth of information packed in here. But I want to take you to the, uh, John chapter 12, verse 27. Yeshua says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Well, listen to this. Verse 30. Yeshua answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. You know, I used to read this back in the day without a whole lot of thought and just thinking, oh, you know, I, this makes sense. Yeshua came and now uh, the devil has no more power over us. He has no power here on earth. He has been cast out. Until you get to see the bigger picture and realize what Yeshua was actually talking about when he says, now this ruler will be cast out. Cast out of heaven. Now. Let's build upon this. Just a couple chapters going uh, ahead. John 14, verse 30. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. Think about that statement. Yeshua warns this generation that he is in. The ruler of this world, he is coming. Why would he be coming? Because he's been cast out. Oh, and what do you know? This lines up exactly when you go back and read Revelation 12. It lines up perfectly. So when did this happen? So when can we, from scripturally, derive a timetable of when Hasatan and a third of the angels were cast out? It's in the generation of Yeshua. 
And when you think about this paradigm shift that existed in the universe with the coming of Yeshua to save his sheep, to make atonement, oh, it makes perfect sense. So that when he rises up in power, the kingdom of heaven is purged. Think about that. Not just earth, but the kingdom of heaven. Think about who we serve. Think about that power, that authority. That's who I put my trust in. Powerful. Very, very powerful. I want to close today by taking you back to Genesis, the 8th chapter. And I want to show you, there's actually a story that pretty much articulates everything we covered today. And uh, it just utilizes different imagery. And again, this is, this is going to be a lot of fun. But going to Genesis 8, It came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. Opened the window of the ark that he had made. I want you to understand there are some details that we're going to be covering in Genesis chapter 8. There's a few details that, you know, with all due respect, you have to ask yourself, why were these details even included? Really? Because what you're going to find out, there's a deep prophetic spiritual connotation to the imageries that we're going to be covering in this passage that all echo everything we just talked about. Very powerful. The first thing I want to say is understand the ark is representative of heaven. It's interesting when you know that God came to destroy the earth, where did Noah go? Come into the ark, Noah. Get into Genesis chapter 7. Come into the ark, for I have seen that you have been righteous before me in this generation. I've seen that you've been righteous. This echoes the words of Yeshua. Come, you blessed my father. Come into the kingdom. Inherit that which has been given you. I mean, these are the words. So you see what's happening to Noah. Symbolically, he's being brought into the ark. He's being concealed from what? The wrath of God. In every way, understand, this ark is representative of the kingdom of heaven. You're going to see this even more as we continue. The next thing we read in verse 7 is this. Then he sent out a raven. I want to point something out, and it's always the details are important, right? He sends out a raven. You know this, and it's oriv in the Hebrew. If you're to look this up in the Hebrew, it's oriv. It is an unclean bird. Very important. It's an unclean bird. He sent out a raven, which kept going, oh, to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. What did we just read about Satan? And what... He told the Lord he was doing. He's going to and fro throughout the earth. What is this unclean, or you could say unrighteousness, this raven going out and doing the exact same thing that we discovered that Satan did? Going out, roaming to and fro. All right? Now, interestingly enough, the next thing we read is verse 8. He also sent out from himself a dove, a clean bird. This is a clean bird. And let's take it a step further. When John saw Yeshua, when he's baptized, what did John see? What did he witness? I saw the Spirit ascending, descending down upon Yeshua as a dove. As a dove. Right? And so here we now have this clean bird, this dove, to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. But the dove, what does it say here? Found no resting place for the sole of her foot. What did we read in Enoch 42? Wisdom found no place where she might dwell. Right? Matthew 12. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. But son of man has nowhere to lay his head. 
I know what you're thinking, and you're right. You can't make this stuff up. This is crazy. We keep seeing the Lord is trying to tell us things. Are we willing to see them? He's telling us the same stories over and over again. Again, the book of Esther, that was a phenomenal example of that. This is how cool Scripture is. It's just mind-blowing. So here, the dove, he sends him out the first time. The dove cannot find a place for the sole of her foot. And oh, what a coincidence. She returned into the ark to him. Returned back to heaven. All right? For the waters were on the face of the whole earth, so he put out his hand and took her. And I love how it's used in the feminine again. And drew her into the ark himself, because that's how Enoch utilizes it, is in the feminine. Wisdom went up. Verse 10. And he waited yet another seven days. Seven is time of completion. So he waited until the right moment. And what does he do? And again, he sent the dove out from the ark. Can you say the second coming? This is the second coming of the dove. He sends him out of the ark. Now listen to this in verse 11. Then the dove came to him in the evening, and behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf. So he sends out this dove a second time, but the dove comes back with something. (laughs) A leaf. Representing life. But it's not just any leaf. It is an olive leaf. And what does Israel represent metaphorically? Where do we see this? We see this in the prophet Jeremiah. We see this in the Psalms. We see this in Romans 11. Israel is likened to an olive tree. Likened to an olive tree. And here this dove has a freshly plucked olive leaf celebrating life, celebrating resurrection in her mouth. And Noah knew that the waters had receded from the earth. The time had been completed. And verse 12, So he waited yet another seven days, an appointed time. He waited until the appointed time was over and sent out the dove, which did not return to him again anymore. Meaning he never went back. Oh, isn't that interesting? Because what do we know? That when Yeshua comes and gets this, and he plucks the olive leaf and goes back up up to heaven, he conceals us until the wrath is passed. What are we told? Oh, yeah, heaven, it comes down to earth. It will never return again. There'll never be a division again. New Jerusalem will come down to earth permanent. How awesome is that? With that said, everyone rise to your feet. We are going to do our battle cry. Hear, O Israel, today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint. Do not be afraid. Do not tremble. Do not be terrified because of your enemies. For the Lord your God, it is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies. And he will save you through the name of Yeshua. Amen. Let us cry out together. Today, we will go to war. We will not fear. We will not faint. We will not give in to the flesh. And we will not give in to our enemies. Today we will stand and we will fight. And we will conquer through the might of our Lord Yeshua. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Is he doing it? Thank you.
Deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Bow your heads in prayers. The music team can come up. Father God, we just give you praise and glory. We thank you for the truth of the Messiah, Yeshua. We thank you for the beautiful wisdom of your word. And I love the passage, Lord Yeshua, that you spoke. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. We saw that today. The scriptures testify of who you are. You are the Holy One of God. You are the mighty, awesome, and precious One. You are the Savior who forgives. You are the Savior who lifts up. You are the Savior who comforts. And in your name there is power, and in your name there is authority. And we thank you for your sacrifice, Lord Yeshua. We thank you for who you are, who you chose to be. You could choose to be anything, and there's not a man on earth that could fight against you, against your will. And let, and yet, you humbled yourself. What an awesome example, Lord. I pray that you put in our hearts the hearts of humility as we continue to embark on this art of spiritual warfare, that we are humble before you and we draw closer to you than we've ever been, humbling ourselves in your sight so that you may lift us up. We just pray that you bless the rest of this time, Lord. Uh, This is a blessed day. The Shabbat is blessed because you have made it so. And so we we run into this blessing, Lord, uh, with both feet, with with, uh, open eyes and an open heart, Lord. We just pray these things in the mighty name of Yeshua. Amen.